Hello and welcome to episode number four of Midiera Meets, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music industry. This month I'm speaking to Peter Golding, who's had a phenomenal career within musical theatre, working on the original productions of Phantom of the Opera and exceptionally closely with Ron Moody throughout his stage career. Peter studied at the Guild Hall and was taught conducting by Leonard Bernstein. He went on to tour with artists such as Elton John and forge incredibly strong friendships with people like Freddie Mercury and Stephen Gaines. He's now a vocal coach and MD and I caught up with him in his Shropshire home to talk about his career, so let's check it out. So, my first question yeah. is about your beginnings, your musical beginnings and where, where, what music first influenced you when you were younger? Mm. Um, I started on a, off in a really strange way in that I wasn't in the least bit interested in music when I was very young. Um, I, I, my earliest memory of being even vaguely interested was at primary school. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a headmaster there. And he used to play hymns at assembly every day very badly on the piano. Um and it was one of these Damon pianos that every school used to have, I think, pinned against the wall. And I remember him bashing the dear life out of this piano. Mm. And there were raw notes scattered everywhere. And we always used to laugh at him. Um, was it like Les Dawson? Yeah, it was, very much so. <laughs> yeah, only Les Dawson could play very well and could work out how to do the wrong. Whereas this guy just, I can't remember his name was him now. Um, he just, he was bashing away. I'm amazed the piano didn't do it through the floor. Um, and we all laughed at that. And I do rem- vaguely remember, thank God not trying to copy him, um, but sort of sitting down with a hymn book, because it was a CFE school, it was quite a high CFE primary school, um, <clears> that was on top of the piano one lunchtime when I came in. I don't, I don't know how old I was. I, I do remember it was primary school, though. Mm-hmm. Maybe seven or eight years old or something, I don't know. And just trying to work out some chords from this book. Because um, I didn't have any musical training as such there. Um, we did have a music teacher there, and she taught us vaguely bits and pieces, but yeah. primary school, you don't do much stuff like that, do you? Um, no. It would all be C major scale. Yeah, basically, yes. Yeah. So, so I could sort of vaguely work it out from the book. And the headmaster came in to see me one day at lunchtime, and um, he said, oh, that sounds quite good. I mean, he said, I've got some more books in my stuff. Do you want to borrow them? Um, mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, great. So he, he didn't lend them to me to take home, but he said, if you want to sit in lunchtime and play, you can. So... You know, you had things like Joseph and stuff like that. And, I mean, it was impossible for me. Mm-hmm. You know, little hands trying to work this thing out. But I, I kind of worked through it, but it didn't really interest me. It wasn't something I would ever dream of doing as a career. Yeah. Um, it, wasn't, it was bizarre how it sort of turned, because when I went to secondary school, I did do music O-level. But, again, I wasn't really interested in it. Um, I just did it as an option, I think. Mm-hmm. And I could still play, but I wasn't good at all and I think I was about must have, I must have been about 15 um, and I wanted to be a draftsman because I was really good at technical drawing at school alright and I wanted that's what I was going to be that's what my career was going to be that's great. and at the age of 15 I went to a concert at the Barbican in London the Barbican Concert Hall with my best mate from school, Paul, who bizarrely has just moved to Ludlow. Um, oh, really? Oh, that's good. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, <laughs> 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 I hope he's not listening. <laughs> I hope he won't. Uh, um, <laughs> and we went to this concert, and it was a piano concert. It was a Ratmaninoff piano concert, and I was absolutely blown away by it. And I think maybe my parents had a record of it at home or something. Um, and I was quite a sort of shy kid, and... I went backstage, which is something I would never normally dream of doing. Mm-hmm. And I walked up to this very famous concert business and I said, I want to play that, will you teach me? Wow, really? <laughs> yeah, at the age of 15. Um, and he was so taken aback. And he eventually sort of chatted to me a little bit and said, do you play? I said, well, no, not really. Um, I just doodle, but I, I, but I want to play that piece. Mm. And I want you to teach me it. That's and, incredible. And he said to me, okay, um, have a think about it carefully, and if you're serious, write to me, here's my address. And he wrote his address on my programme. Brilliant. Um, and I went home and I spoke to my parents, and they said, 
what do you want to do that for? <laughs> You've never shown any interest in music before, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not musical in the slightest. I mean, they used to have classical records at home, and but just general stuff that everybody vaguely listened to classically, you know. Yeah. Nothing of any great interest. Um, and I was determined to do it. And this was about 1981, 82-ish, I suppose. Um, and he charged £50, which was a lot of money in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, for, but I was quite lucky. He charged for a session, not for an hour. That's good. And he yeah. lived in Bow in London, in a very nice studio apartment, if you like, and with a beautiful gra- two beautiful grand pianos. Um, and I used to go up there on Sundays, and I used to do it every two weeks. And he said, my aim is to get you into the Guildhall, mm-hmm. where you can study properly, um, if you want to be a concert pianist. So... I said, okay. So, in the meantime, I was still studying at home um, in Colchester, which is where I'm from. Um, and then when I finished school, I didn't want to do A-levels at school, so I went to what was then called the Technical College, um, which was basically a music college. So I thought that might help me a little bit to get more involved in music there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a really good orchestra there, and they had a jazz band, and they had loads of practice rooms, so it was quite handy for me to go there. So I did A-levels there. Um and meanwhile, Philip was teaching me in London every other week. And when I got to <clears throat> 17 or 18, I think, um, he said, OK, let's try you in the Guildhall. I said, I've only been playing for three years. You know? mm-hmm. And I remember going into the audition. Um, and there were, I think, something like 2,500 people after 20 places. Really? From around the world. Wow, yeah. that's such a and, high ratio. Yeah. And... It was quite an interesting audition because um, they first of all said to me, um, what grades have you got? Because you specified on the audition sheet you had to have grade eight at your first instrument and grade five at your second instrument. Wow. And I said, I have not taken the grades. And they said, well, in that case, sorry, no. Mm. And I said, well, surely it's more important how I play than what's on a piece of paper, isn't it? Yeah. Being a bit cheeky. Um, And they said, oh, okay play something so I played I think a couple of Chopin studies incredibly tricky ones they said oh hmm. alright <laughs> who do you study with and I said oh Philip Folk and I said oh do you he doesn't take many pupils I said no but I'm one of his pupils yeah and they said oh okay and funny Philip um, was a teacher at the Royal Academy of Music um, and so <clears throat> I did this I played let's say some Chopin pieces um, and then they said to me right what's your second, second instrument going to be it hadn't even occurred to me that I had to have a second instrument. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, especially up to grade no. five as well on it. So, I, so I, I, I thought, what's going to be the easiest thing to do? Quickly. Um, I said, oh, a tune percussion, timpani. And, <laughs> and so they took me into the timpani room at the Guildhall. It was very funny. Um, and they said, right, okay, there's a timpani. Tune it to E-flat, please. And, of course, my eyes sort of shot up a bit. And I was thinking, oh my god! That, um, they wanted you to do that by ear. Yeah, I don't yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, so I was sort of thinking back to any pieces I played that were in E flat <laughs> at that point, trying to get the hum the note in my head. And it wasn't even a pedal timp; it was actually you know one where you had the, the the keys around the side and you had to sort of tighten all eight of them. And not well, after about twenty minutes, they they gave up on me. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I was going around this thing and the, the pitches were getting in different places. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. And they said, "That's close enough." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I had later I got it's in grade four point five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> minus four point five, I'd say. Um, and I got in there. Um, and funnily enough, I auditioned for the academy. And I also got in there. <laughs> <laughs> which was very unusual. That's incredible. Um, but I hated the academy. Um, it's an amazing place to study, I'm sure, but it's a very, speaking of marble with you earlier, mm-hmm. a very cold marble building. Yeah. And I found it very unfriendly. Whereas at the Guildhall, because it's the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, you had a diverse mix of people all wandering around. And it's quite open plan at the Guildhall. And everybody used to sort of meet in the cafe area downstairs. Um and it was great because all the drama students would also come. So they were all very chatty. Yeah. And it was Excellent. a really lovely atmosphere mm. there, which I much preferred to the Academy. I, I hated the Academy, to be honest. Um, so I took the Guildhall. Mm. 
West End in, in yeah. sort of musical theatre. And also you studied um, conducting. I did. Yeah, you had a very famous mentor. <laughs> yeah, is that right? That was an interesting one. Um, that was when I was at the Guildhall. Um, because obviously I wanted to be a concert pianist. That's what I wanted to do originally. Um, and while I was still at the Guildhall, um, in 1985, so before I met this conductor, um, I was phoned up by a friend of mine who was working on the rehearsals of Phantom of the Opera, the original version of it, um, before, mm. before it even opened at Her Majesty's. Um, and they were rehearsing in Fulham. And she said to me, um, would you come over and play for some of the rehearsals? So I said, yeah. Um, so I did, and I quite enjoyed it. And it was interesting having the score changed every couple of days by Andrew Lloyd Webber, who was there a lot, obviously overseeing it all. Um, mm-hmm. um, I can't remember who the conductor was. I think the original conductor was Michael Reed. Um, and he was there as well, and con- basically conducting me to get a feel of the tempos and stuff like that. And there's obviously Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman, and it was interesting to see the show being created over a period of months. Um, and we also kind of thought, this is a big show. I wonder if you forget about, you know, you have to think back before all the hype of it. Um, and it was incredible. Mm. Um, and nowadays, you know, it's been running, what, 30 years in the West End, hasn't it? Um, but I remember the building it up into um, this massive thing. And Cameron McIntosh was, I can't remember if he was producing it. I think he must have been. Um, was it taken over because it's a really useful group now, you know, which is Lord Webber's group. Um, I think on the opening night of the show, it was sold out for something like three years in advance. Wow. Yeah. And there were people sleeping on the street outside the stage door for a week to get a ticket. And the queue of sleeping bags literally went for about a mile around central London because people were so desperate to see this show. Yeah. They, um, I mean, how did they... What was the excitement that was... It, that Andrew was and Weber, I think, there. had built up the hype of the show very well indeed. Because, um, of course, his wife, Sarah Brightman, was the leading lady in it. Michael Crawford, it was his first time on stage, I think, since he'd done Barnum. And with Barnum, which is a great show, she at the Victoria Palace, um, he sounded very much like Frank Spencer, vocally. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much. It, it wasn't quite put on as much. But he did sound yeah. vocally like... Um, yeah, it was in, all I think, all the papers that he had to go to a special specialist vocal coach to drop his voice so you know an octave or something yeah. to sing the role of the phantom um so of course there was all that hype um just visualizing the phantom with uh, i know with, with, my, with frank spencer voice yeah um it's not so imposing no, a character no. then um, is it and the fact that he had he's had to spend three hours putting his makeup on before the show so he couldn't actually go out between shows if there was a matinee and an evening show he had to stay in and he could only right. drink liquid through a straw he couldn't eat anything um so and that was in all the papers and there were interviews with him and stuff. So obviously people think this is something special. Yeah, this is this is unusual. Um, so it, yeah, it just completely sold out. And I remember Princess Diana had seats reserved in every for every show. There were four seats in the stalls always reserved for her because wow. she wanted to go and see it so much. In fact, funny if I sat next to her one day because um, I I phoned Debbie, my friend, and said, um, "Oh, um, any chance of any tickets tonight?" And she said, "You'd be joking." She said, I'm probably going to give you the house seats, which Diana's seats, basically. Mm. She said, I don't think she'll be in spite. She was only in a couple of nights ago. And I said, okay. Um, so I sat down, <laughs> and then suddenly everybody stood up. <laughs> and she walked in with, with a friend of hers, I don't know, and sat literally next to me, oh. <laughs> which was slightly unusual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I did that. Um, and I was still at the Guildhall then. And I thought, actually, this musical theatre is quite interesting. Um, I quite fancy conducting stuff because I hadn't really done it at that point at all I'd just been rehearsal pianist you know for the show mm-hmm. um, and so I got into conducting at the Guildhall and there was a point I'm trying to remember this um, about 1986 I suppose it would have been um, where we were due to perform Leonard Bernstein's Mass at the Guildhall and we um I can't remember how it actually came about. He was coming over to conduct it. And because I was studying conducting, I was to be his assistant. Um, so I thought, okay, I want to meet him first. Mm-hmm. And I, he was doing a signing session in Harrods one day, a couple of days before he came to the Guildhall. 
Right. And he was on the top floor of Howard's. And he was very, very, very late arriving. Um, and there was a queue sort of snaking around the whole building for an autograph. And so the guys at the desk said to us, look, well, Mr. Bernstein writes, he's just been rehearsing with the London Symphony Orchestra at the Barbican Hall, and he's got a recording to do tonight. So he has very little time. So please, he normally likes to talk to people, please don't ask him any questions, just literally offer what you want him to sign and mm-hmm. go, because he's, got, he's going to be very late and he's got so little time, and they were all trying to look after him. Anyway, I was mm. towards the back of this queue. Um, so I thought, well, I really wanted to talk to him about something. You know, so, but I went up to him, and funnily enough, one of the people looking after him worked at the Guildhall. I said, oh, hi, Peter. Um, <laughs> oh, um, and first I said, oh, how do, you, how do you know each other? And I said, oh, well, I'm at the Guildhall. He said, oh, great, are you doing the mass? I said, well, actually, I'm your assistant. He said, oh, fantastic. And then we stood chatting for about 10 minutes about his mass, much oh, to the annoyance of everybody behind <laughs> me who was trying desperately to get to him to get an autograph. Um, and he said, okay, fine, I'll see you in a couple of days. Um, so anyway, he came to the Guildhall, and we hit off brilliantly. We got my house on fire. Mm. And um, he said, okay, I'm not going to conduct it. You are. I'll be your assistant. <laughs> which wow. is something that's um, yeah um, so I was Bernstein's assistant um, sorry he was my assistant rather and I conducted the show or the piece rather should I say um, and that was interesting and we got on really well and he said you're really really good at what you're doing you haven't done it for long but it's really interesting you're obviously natural at it um, hmm. do you want to do some more work with me I said, yeah great um, so it was a tough decision but I left the guild hall um, I did a really good training there actually really good training mm-hmm. um, but I left about five months before I should have done because he offered to work with me for six months in America and I'm sorry I wasn't going to turn that opportunity down opportunity, yeah, yeah I wasn't going to turn that down um, so I went over to New York and um, he got me an apartment sorted out and he was superb he was a lovely lovely guy um, he lived in the Dakota building opposite Lauren Bacall Mm-hmm. Um, funnily enough, I often used to see there. Um, he was he had an apartment opposite hers, and he got me an apartment sorted out. And he was brilliant with me because um, he used to take me into rehearsals. He was conducting the New York Philharmonic, and I remember he, one day we, he was rehearsing in Carnegie Hall, and he phoned me and said, "Do you want to come in?" I said, "Yeah, great, I'd love to." Um, and he was rehearsing, I think, the Brahms Fourth Symphony or something like that. I can't remember what it was now. Um, and he said um, he was rehearsing the Fourth Movement. It's, it's an awkward movement to rehearse, um, tempo wise. And he said, how would you do it? I said, oh. um, and I knew it quite well, actually, in my head. And I said, probably. And he said, okay, show me. And so, so, so claim to fame in America was standing on Carnegie Hall stage conducting the New York Philharmonic. I'm usually only for about five minutes, but <laughs> that was quite interesting. And it's an amazing building, I have to say. Was well. that sort of an out-of-body experience when you did Well, it? no, the out-of-body experience feel? was more, actually, with the fact that I was working with, with Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. All the deal. But, it's a very sustained thought, out-of-body how, experience. How more surreal can this get? <laughs> and then standing on stage at Carnegie Hall was a little bit odd, yeah. Um, That's incredible. But yeah, so that worked. Uh, and, but he's the one that sort of got me more interested in musical theatre, because he said, yeah, you're a very intuitive conductor. Have you thought about musical theatre and stuff like that? And I said, well, not... Really, I said, you know, I was rehearsal opinions for Phantom, but I hadn't really thought about conducting it. Um, I just thought it might be interesting. And he said, oh, and he was talking about West Side Story and showed me all of his original notes for West Side Story when he wrote it and, you know, the fact that it was originally called East Side Story, mm-hmm. which I didn't know, um, and that, that he changed the ending. Um, because the, uh, the, I think at the first shows when it was first done in, 19, I think it was 55, on Broadway, um, because the, the big difference between West Side Story and Romeo and Juliet, which, which is based on, obviously, is that in Romeo and Juliet, they both die. Mm. In West Side Story, she lives. Right. And I always wondered why that was. And he said, we had it originally, in the first few previews, I think, that Tony's shot and Maria um, goes and jumps off the Brooklyn Bridge and commits suicide. Mm-hmm. But the audience <laughs> were reeling from both of those murders or suicides yeah. when they're coming out and he said we honestly thought this is just too much for the audience so what we did in the end obviously we have Maria crouching over Tony when he's been shot dead and then she the lights fade and she wanders off and he said we just let the audience assume that she's going That's to go good, and do something it? Yeah. yeah so it's quite interesting hearing that from, from the man who wrote the show I just kind of got more into musical theatre then, um, and there was a show in Colchester where I'm 
where I was born. Um, it was Sweeney Todd, it was Sondheim. And the conductor, I was the rehearsal pianist. Don't spend my life you know, being a rehearsal pianist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conductor had a rather stupidly got another job in Edinburgh and just dropped the whole project. Oh. And Sondheim is notoriously hard to play and conduct. It is ridiculously difficult. Mm-hmm. And because I knew the show, they asked me if I would conduct it. So I said, yeah, okay. Um, so I did that. And that, that was kind of my, I suppose, my first conducting job, I would say. Um, it probably was, to be honest, yeah. Um, and... I can't remember where I sort of went from... I can't remember how I got from there to doing other big shows, to be honest. I, um, mm. it, luck is <laughs> <laughs> a good way of putting it, I suppose. Um, and, and, and it's who you know as well, to a certain extent, in that obviously I get in touch with people like Cameron McIntosh and Lloyd Webber from Phantom Days. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was... Yeah, that, that is luck. Yeah. And I, I was lucky to have met them at that point. And... Yeah, you I, know. I think I think perhaps it would be luck, but also it's not luck that they'd like to and you got no, them well no, as well. You know? No, that's so you true. Have a, if you're a hard, yeah. if you if you're like if you're someone who's really lazy but likable, yeah. they're gonna think, well, maybe let's not employ him, but he's a nice guy. Yeah, so clearly you're yeah, that's someone true. Who is talented and yeah, driven, I suppose so. Yeah, um, friendly. Yeah, I mean it was interesting. Um, it's funny because a lot of a lot of people, a lot of actors, I find when they um. When they do something that they're quite famous for, they 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 don't want to be reminded of it particularly. Which I always find it a slight paradox because mm-hmm. it's that that made you famous. So I mean, it's like um, you're talking about some others do have them. Um, I did the mystery plays in Canterbury Cathedral in about two thousand five or six, and the person playing God was Edward Woodward, fantastic mm. actor. Um, sadly passed away now. Um, but of course, his wife was Michelle Dutrice, who was Betty and some others do have them. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh wow! Um, I used to love her when I was you? when I was a kid. Yeah. that was um, um, yeah, and that was his wife. Really? Um, and Edward was wife. Yeah, and um, when really? and Edward wasn't very well at that point. In fact, he died not long after that. Um, and Michelle used to bring him into the cathedral every day, and people carry a thing, you know, big car, a quite a big one. Mm. Um, and he normally had a walking stick at that point. Um, and I can't remember what was wrong with him to be honest. Um, but as soon as he got out of the car, he would walk from the car to the cathedral unaided, without a stick, because he refused to let people see him wear a, use a walking stick. Right. Um, and I do remember, the because I was quite in awe of Michelle Therese at that point as well, and she's a very lovely lady, and I, I sort of lent into the car at one point. I, no, I took everyone out to the car after one of the rehearsals, I think, um, and she was out there waiting for him. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, nice to meet you, I'm Peter. And she said, oh, yes, I've heard you, you're the music director, aren't you? And I said, um... um Sorry, I'm going to be really rude here, but I, I, are you Mr. Trees or are you Mrs. Woodward? You said, just call me Lady God. Lady God? <laughs> he was playing God. Oh, okay. <laughs> so she was Lady God. <laughs> Which I thought was a great thing to do. Um, exactly. But it was quite, quite happy to call her. Yeah. <laughs> but I was staying in, I was staying actually in Canterbury, um, and she came, she and Edward came around for dinner one day uh, with me, and it was very funny, and I said to her, can I ask you a question? She, and Michelle de Trees is... is the most beautifully spoken person, actress, I've met for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, as long as it's not about that fucking TV show I did about 20 years ago, because everybody asks me about that. I was actually wish I wasn't going to be about that anyway. <laughs> You'd be pleased to know. Yeah. But I thought it was quite interesting, her reaction to it. And she said, I don't mind talking about it. She said, but God, everybody always asks me about some others do have them. So yeah. I have done other work since. <laughs> I, can totally, I can totally see her point of view on that yeah. one, really. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's like um, you want to be known for your latest work, not like yeah. the one you did 20 years ago, because you feel like then... What's all this? It's an unfortunate. I've been doing it's, yeah, time? it is unfortunate though, isn't it? Because um, I mean, I, there are a couple of other actors like Gordon Kay, who's sadly passed away this year, um, from a lower low who played Rene, who I did panto with, I don't know, fifteen years ago, and we kept in touch actually. Um, and he was a really nice guy, um, but he mm-hmm. used to absolutely hate anybody recognizing him as Rene or calling him Rene in the street. He absolutely hated it, and he always said, "I have done other things." Yeah, but it is that that made him really, really famous and gave him a lot of money yeah you know. a, a built a career yeah, around yeah yeah exactly and it is a bit of a paradox yeah it is really saying, and it? it's also um ron moody who i conducted the last oliver for when he was fagin um he was exactly the same though luckily ron was slightly different because um he looked completely different out of the makeup and the beard and everything mm-hmm. so obviously you know we all know the iconic picture of fagin you know with the hat the flat hat and the beard 
and the sort of whiskers at the side and the green coat, which as the film, you know, as he was in the film. Um, yeah. But when he took all that off, he actually looked quite different. So he wasn't that often recognised, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. Because um, I did his one-man show with him in London as well, after we did Oliver, um, at the Shaw Theatre. And we did a tour of it as well. And I remember, it was quite late at night, we finished rehearsing. Um, and he lived in Southgate in North London. Um, and he, I, I think I was getting a train from King's Cross to summer, so I walked to King's Cross with him, and he sat and waited for me with my train, which was nice of him, because mm. um, he wasn't always that nice. <laughs> but, um, and, we, and we went into a cafe, um, and it was very interesting, because a guy came over to us, and he said, it's Ron Moody, isn't it? And Ron said, yes. Mm. And he was one of the original Fagan's gang that was in the original production that Ron did in the Albury Theatre in London in 1960. Um, And he was one of the little kids from the gang, who's now a great big strapping bloke. Um, um, Ron said, oh, what's your name then? And he told him, he said, yeah, I think I do remember that name. Yeah, I don't know whether he's being polite. Mm -hmm. Um, But they had a chat for a while, um, which is quite interesting. So he obviously recognised him from that. Yeah. (laughs) Am I right in thinking he was the... uh, You were his MD for Oliver... Was he still in Oliver then? No, no, no. No, no he, he was, was 83, 84 when he did it. Um, oh, it was quite an interesting story behind that because um, obviously he created the role um, with Lionel Bart in London in the 60s. I think it was 1960 actually at the Albury Theatre. It's interesting. Most people think he was very old when he played Fagin. He was actually quite young but he made himself up to look old because mm-hmm. uh, when the movie was done I think he was about 40 at that point somewhere around there. I may be getting my facts completely wrong. Maybe even 35. Mm-hmm. He was actually relatively young. Um, but yeah, he created the role in London. Playing a sort um, of miserly yeah, old man. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he then did it on Broadway and in Los Angeles um, later on. And he'd basically had enough of it. He was a very, very, very tricky man to work with, I have to say, to be very <laughs> honestly. He was very awkward. Um, but um, when we were um, trying to work, we, we were doing this production in Canterbury, at the Marlowe Theatre in Canterbury, which is a lovely theatre. And... The producer phoned me one day and said, um, I'm trying to get Ron Moody to play Fagin. And I, said, I just laughed. I said, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Good luck. Um, <laughs> that's not going to happen, is it? Um, and he said, I'm getting somewhere. And he phoned me about three days later and said, you'll never guess what. He's agreed. And I said, okay. And I won't say Did figures. get the right guy? <laughs> yeah, I won't say figures at all. But um, what happened was, he phoned his agent, who was a very lovely lady, who I met a few times, um, and he said to her, I'd like Ron to play Fagin for us in Canterbury. And she said, no. Um, he did it, he, last time he did it was 20 years ago, and he said never ever again would he play Fagin. Hmm. Um, and the producer said, well, I'll offer him this much, which was actually quite a lot of money. In fact, it was a heck of a lot of money. It was into five yeah. figures oh. per week. Wow. Yes. Um, and she said, uh, no, he won't do it. So the money went up. And she said, I'll ask him. <laughs> so she asked him. And he said no. So the producer went back to her and the money went up. Again. So we're now at a figure starting with a three at the beginning with five. Mm-hmm. Yes, five. Yeah, yeah. Per week. Nice amount, really. Per week. Um, so she went back to him and again he said, uh, no, I don't want to do it. Hmm. Anyway, the figure eventually went up a few times more and he then agreed. Shrewd businessman. Yeah, um, and it was it was very very odd because he understandably he hadn't done it for twenty years. He was very nervous about doing it again, and he he was about eighty two or eighty three at that point. Um, very sprightly man though, and he obviously wanted to meet me beforehand to run through stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was at the Gerald Space in Waterloo, which is where I often rehearse, and it, that was a surreal moment because I was standing there playing reviewing the situation and he was singing it and that that was quite odd because I thought I've seen this on the film so many times yeah and now I've got you here doing it with me and I'm suggesting things to you and this is very peculiar yeah that was you a, have yeah, to do it that was, that was a bit surreal yeah um it was interesting talking to him because he told me about the time when he was nominated for an Oscar for Fagan and he was at the awards ceremony sitting between Stan Laurel and Groucho Marx 
Wow. And um, he, was, he said he was so annoyed because Groucho Marx invited him for lunch the next day and he went to Groucho's house. And after he'd been invited, Stan Laurel also invited him for lunch and he couldn't say yes because he'd been invited. And he said, I would far rather have gone to Stan Laurel's house than to Groucho Marx's house. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because um, I, I only learned recently that Stan Laurel was the understudy to Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Fred so Collins. Yeah. 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 I thought, I thought, mm. I thought wow, I never... Yeah, that's a whole new world just yeah. opened up there of talent. But, but really. yeah, but yeah, if Ron was really annoyed about that because um, he wanted. And there was another um, time I was sitting there having breakfast and we were doing, making notes about what we were going to rehearse. And he pulled out a little tiny notepad out of his pocket. It was a beautiful little leather notepad. And on the first page was written to my English cousin Ron with love from Bing. And I looked at it. And I said, "Is that Bing Crosby?" He said, "Yeah." Hmm. I said, "Oh." How do you know? He said I was in the Crosby Show in America for about six episodes. He said I was I was the posh English cousin of Bing Crosby, and he really? gave his little notepad at the end of the, of the wow. filming. <laughs> so he came up with some wonderful stories. You know, they were really interesting. A great man to chat to. Yeah. But but quite awkward to work with. I have to be honest. He I mean, he knew he was. Mm-hmm. He knew he was tricky. Um, and move along sideways was quite an experience because he. Had he written it? He, was yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all written. Baby. He played something like yeah. forty-six parts in the two-hour show. Wow! Not easy at that age, you know. Wow. It, 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 I mean, it, it was basically me on the piano on stage with him, um, and it was, it was. And, you know, he had sort of prop tables with costumes and different hats, and obviously fake and stuff. His beard, and, you know. But he played all these characters literally, and he would do monologues and songs about them. It was, it was very interesting. Mm. Um, but his memory was going at that point as well so I became more and more part of the act because I would I had a few lines which were scripted I had to say to him mm-hmm. um, I can't remember what they were now, even to be honest um, but it almost got to the point where I had to add a lot more in because he was forgetting stuff and I had to think of a way to get him on the right track without making it look obvious yeah not like coughing the yeah, first line <laughs> so it's really quite tricky um, uh, and it was it was strange because he the first performance he was brilliant the second performance he was shocking the third, he was brilliant. The fourth, he was shocked. And it went on like that. It was one day on, one day off almost. Mm. And it was very strange. This went on for quite a while. Um, and he also became quite temperamental. And he was quite a temperamental man anyway. Um, and when he got things wrong, he would shout and scream in his dressing room a bit. And i just keep out of the way and go home. You know? <laughs> um, but it was a sort of a privilege to work with him, I have to say. And to do the last time, he conduct the last time he ever did Fagin. Yeah. Which is great. And I've got a programme. And I think... um, I've got a script over there, actually. Um which I thought I'm not going to do Fagin again, Oliver again with him. So I and I don't often get people to sign things, but I I asked him one day when he was in a good mood. <laughs> was it often. on one of the good days? Yeah, it was. Um, I picked my moment. Um, and he put. Um, I can remember actually. It's it's put to Peter. You truly deserve the title Maestro, and you've made this show what it is with love from Ron, which I thought was a really nice thing to put actually. That's um, really good. Yeah. yeah. people that you've worked with is pretty tremendous in terms like in theatre and in music too I know we've we've took you've told me a few stories about uh, touring with bands or with musicians yeah I've done a lot of it I mean I I, I, I toured with Elton John um, which I think I've told you before um, mm-hmm. um, and I only got to know him really actually by accident in that I when I still live in Colchester um, it was Ray Cooper who was this drummer and percussionist, phenomenal drummer and percussionist, I have to say, um, who I met somewhere in Colchester. I, he was his mother lived near there. I used mm-hmm. to go and visit her. I can't remember where I met him even. Um, but I recognised him immediately as being Ray Cooper, and, he's, and he was quite chuffed, I think, I recognised him, because not, obviously not many people would recognise a drummer, would they? Yeah. Really, unless you're John Deacon, I suppose. Um, no, mm-hmm. sorry, Roger Taylor. Um, um, and... We kind of hit it off, and he came to one of my recitals. I was doing classical recitals. He came to see me doing a recital. He said, oh, that was really good. He, I, think he, I think he brought his mother with him, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And we went out for a drink after, and he said, oh, that's really good. Um, me and Elton are planning a solo tour um, for his... It was one of his anniversaries, over 25 years or, 30, or 20 years. Well, I can't remember which one it was now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wants a keyboard player, um, because it's going to be him and the grand piano, uh, and me on percussion, that's going to be it. There's no band. But we want things like string fills for Don't Let the Sun Go Down On Me and 
you know, songs like that um, mm -hmm. in the second act. And would you be interested in doing this? Yeah, you bet I would, you know. <laughs> um, that'd be really yeah. interesting to do, yeah. Um, so Ray took me to meet him. And he was great. We, we got on really well. Um, and we discussed the songs. I went through the song list with him um, at his house in Windsor. Um, which is rather nice, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> um, not your normal two up, two down. Um, and... Um, and that kind of, that's kind of where it went from, really. Um, and it was great. Um, and he did, uh, like, we did uh, the Greek Amphitheatre in Los Angeles. We did, uh, I think, Paris, Rome. And I know we finished at the Albert Hall in London. Wow. Um, and it was great. Uh, it, it was fantastic to see the touring side of... of quite a well-known musician, really. Um, mm. well, yeah, I mean, and, yes, he is temperamental. <laughs> but he's only temperamental because he's a perfectionist and he wants everybody else to get it right so he doesn't look stupid, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, which is, understand I've, been, I've worked with a lot of musicians like that, um, in that they come across as being very difficult, but they're not. They, they know their worth and they know what they're good at doing mm -hmm. and they want you to be at their standard. Yeah. Otherwise you shouldn't be there. Really. Yeah, exactly. They, um, they have very high standards. Yeah. yeah. And they and want they expect, everyone else yeah, to, exactly. to equate to I mean, I've, I've, I mean um, you, when I was doing a show quite a while ago, it was another pantomime I did actually, Crew Lyceum, the one with Gordon Kay, and I remember that the cast <laughs> was Gordon Kay, Barry Howard from Heidi High, Robin Asquith from Confessions of a whatever, all the films, um, mm -hmm. um, and a couple of other very well-known people. And I remember walking into the room for the first day of rehearsal and seeing all these incredibly famous faces sitting there, <laughs> um, having a cup of coffee, you know, chatting and getting to know each other. Yeah. And the first days of rehearsals are always horrible. Anyway, the first time you meet and greet a cast, it's horrible because um, it is quite nerve-wracking. And I do remember thinking on that day what on earth am I doing here? And I, then I thought, actually, no, because the producer wouldn't have hired me unless he thought I was up to the job. So that's why I'm here. Oh, clearly you're talented yeah. enough to be in the room. But there, there, yeah, there, is, there, is, there is doubt, quite a lot that creeps in, you know. And funny enough, because I got to know Gordon K. Bremer last week, and he always said he always used to hate first day of rehearsals as well because he would get very nervous, mm. which you don't expect him to do, really, but he... Did say he would get very nervous indeed on first days. Yeah, I think um, we're all we're all sort of human in yeah. the sense that we're not. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's one thing a lot of people forget. Actors are humans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, of course, we see them on the TV all the time or on the stage, but they're only human beings. Um, you know, and it, yes, it can be very irritating sometimes to be constantly pestered. I would imagine. Um, it's like when I um, um, did the Wizard of Oz with Stephen Gately. Um, I used to feel really sorry for him sometimes because we used to go out quite a lot in London um, mm -hmm. and I remember one particular day we went to, for lunch in Joe Allen's um, next to the street and that's fine because it's, it's a showbiz restaurant and everybody that's anybody goes there and that's fine he wasn't bothered at all and when we walked out the door um, he put a red baseball cap on and pulled it quite low over his face um, I think he had a red jacket on as well which <laughs> wasn't the most Engolverous thing to wear, probably. yeah. It's yeah. Not exactly. um, yeah. Um, not the best way to fade into the black background, but Stephen was never one for fading into the background. Um, uh -huh. And he said, oh, I need to do some shopping, come, go and come with me. Um, so I said, Okay, and I, yeah, we were just wandering around, really. Uh, we went to, I think, the Crabtree and Evelyn shop, and he wanted some specific type of something, you know, um, fragrance or whatever, or bath, I can't remember what it was. Mm. Um, anyway, he spent quite a while looking around, and we turned, and outside the window, were probably 50 or 60 people staring at him and just staring at the glass mm. and it was quite unusual and he said he, did, he didn't face him at all and he just said to the shopkeeper have you got a back door and the shopkeeper said yeah mm. he said okay could you mind and he said no not at all um that's fantastic it's, it's a, there's like it's, procedural yeah a procedural way to get around it yeah I, I guess if there's 50 people waiting outside the shop they were just all looking, they were just staring, they, th they obviously thought, is it him, isn't it him, you know, it's one of the things you do, I suppose. I mean, mm -hmm. there was another instance when I was, I had to drive him back from a rehearsal one day, and he used to live in um, Highgate, North London, and I was driving around the North Circular, and we were chatting away um, in the car, and we pulled up, it was quite a wide junction, I remember, it was on I think Finchley Road somewhere, and the traffic lights were red, and so we stopped, and he was, he was outside of me, chatting away to me, and I suddenly heard some screams. And 
we looked over and there was a hairdresser's. And all these girls were, were coming out and screaming his name. Um, and I was thinking, God, let these lights change quick. Let these lights change quick. And it didn't face me. He didn't even look. He just kept talking to me. Um, and I, because I was facing him so I could see what was going on on the pavement. And they, mm-hmm. they were just, people suddenly starting to crowd around the road and almost walking to the road. And thank yeah. God the lights changed then. Um, but it doesn't really sort of phase him particularly. Or, or sorry, didn't, should I say. Yeah. Um, I yeah, suppose yeah. he got used to it. I mean, I, I went to see the last time he... Um, he did Boys Own Tour just before he passed away. Um, he got me front row, centre. Excellent. Which is rather nice of him. So the whole gig was played to me from Stephen. Mm-hmm. And I've got some fantastic photographs of him literally pointing at me and looking at me and singing to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally the whole thing was done to me. And at one point, he was such a cheeky so-and-so. Um, before the gig started, and there was a big screen up there, and you had to, I can't remember exactly how it worked, but you had to text your number to, to this screen or whatever, into this particular number. Mm-hmm. And one lucky person would be picked out from the audience um, and would go on stage with the boys and have their picture taken and could ask them questions, etc. You know, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it was always going to be some hysterical girl, wasn't it? Of course. Um, anyway. Guaranteed to faint the moment yeah. they get on stage. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I'm standing in the front row. <laughs> And they were trying and Steve, I could see Steve looking at me and he went, he pointed at me and he went, you, and he beckoned to me. And I just went, no. I just shook my head at him. And, and I went, and he went, mm-mm, and nodded. And I could see a security guard coming along the road. I said, oh, God. And he sort of grinned at me from the stage. And um, then Ronan said, oh, and um, because a girl had been up at that point, I think, already. Mm-hmm. And said, oh, we have another guest coming up. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. Um, and the security guard came and got me and said, um, Stephen wants to see you. I said, yes, I can see that. I really don't want to see him at the moment. <laughs> Tell him I'm busy. Yeah. Um, and I, what could I do, you know? Um, so I had to go. <laughs> so I was put up. And he was really naughty. He said to me, hello, and what's your name? <laughs> Enter. And... What's your favourite boy's own song? And he treated me just like a 17 year old girl. And I, I could have slapped him on stage in front of 20,000 people. Um, and I'd have broken the magic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, knew, I, I did tell him off afterwards. Um, and then he said to me, and Who's your favourite member? I said, Ronan Keating. <laughs> Glaring <laughs> at <Ronan>. him. <laughs> and he did grin at that. He did laugh. <laughs> and I said that with him, because I knew a couple of their songs. So um, he said, Oh, do you want to do some stuff with us? So I some key stuff with them after that on the show which was great fun really? and that was really nice though. and he was he was a wonderful guy who I actually missed an awful lot I have to say because he was such fun to go out with and be around what sort of things do you use nowadays in your music I mean I I I always tend to use if I'm doing shows where they want um, tracks being made up, built up. I tend to use the Roland XP80 because um, I've used it for years, and I've had about seven of them. I think over the past twelve years or something like that, and it's brilliant. I love it, um, mm-hmm. and it's got the fifteen hundred sounds in it, so you know I can just put them together as I want, really. Um, for general, though, it's dreadful for playing because it's such a light keyboard; it's not weighted at all. I see. Um, Whereas for playing, if I'm doing some really heavy stuff on stage, I'll use the RD700 Roman mm-hmm. because that is a proper weighted keyboard and it's beautiful to play. Um, it, it's yeah, it's the one that's one there. Up there, yeah. yeah. Um, with with uh, it's really amazing to see the uh, floppy disks. <laughs> floppy yeah, disks. that's the XP80. Yeah. Um, yeah, they can. Apparently, there is a way where you can now use USB sticks in them. Um, you can yeah. change them. You can buy like a converter thing, but apparently, it's quite complicated to do. I've not have the patience or the energy really to do it. the sort of thing I'd ask you to do actually yeah, well, yeah. I mean yeah that's right up my street really, yeah. because um, all of the NPCs originally used floppy disks yeah. and now yeah you can have converters to SD cards yeah. and another yeah, exactly. thing and USB that, I'd be really so are you sequencing are you yeah. sequencing on the keyboard yeah on the workstation I sequence stuff yeah um, often if I'm doing quite a big thing I will now use Adobe Audition on the computer mm-hmm. um, a lot of people use Cubase but I'm one of prefers audition because it's what I learned on originally, so I just find it easier. Yeah, um, it's very easy. To, I use yeah. it on a daily basis. Yeah, audition. Um, I think it's great. And then I can just, you know, I just take every instrument from the keyboard and just 
do them separately on, you know, and multi-track it down to about, you know, 15, 17, 20, 30 instruments and just keep overlaying them. Mm. Um, and then I can just, you know, mix it down to MP3 if I want to or, or I have file. So, yeah, you also do vocal coaching and um, you sort of mentor people. Yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a singing teacher. Um, I, I, yeah, I, vocal coaching is quite different because people say, oh, will you teach me to sing? Well, no. <laughs> it's normally the answer to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, mainly because I don't, I don't, because you know, I teach a lot. It's a it's an odd thing to say. Mm-hmm. I don't enjoy teaching people from scratch. I haven't. I'm not a very patient person. I see. Um, so, I much prefer to work with people vocally who can sing, mm-hmm. and you know, tweak their voices a bit and just repertoire and stuff like that to them. You know, and then do recordings with them here as well, which I do quite a lot. Um, and I really enjoy doing that. Um, I'm not patient enough to teach somebody from scratch. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so you're like honing, yeah, honing the style, a skill that's already been, you know, got by them. Yeah. Basically. So it's, I don't know if it was like a, let's say it's a wooden sculpture. You're not, mm. you're not cutting the tree down. No. You're just, I'm, yeah, you're just yeah. making the curves it's a little a very bit. Good analogy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you work with vocalists and what sort of advice would you give to people who, um, who work with vocalists and want to get the best from um, them. <clears throat> it depends who they are specifically. I mean, I've got a few students here who um, who work very hard and are very, very good um, and don't answer back and don't complain and just do what I tell them to do. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Um, when you get on to actors and actresses, um, it's a slightly different kettle of fish. Um, I generally find the ones who are very good are the least problematic. Hmm. It's the ones who think they are very good that are the problems. Mm. Um, there's one very famous actress um, who's a very nice lady um, who was in EastEnders for quite a long time. I'll just say that. Um, and I was doing a show with her and she had to sing a specific... I can't remember what the song was. That was quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And she was quite insecure about her singing. It was fine. Um, she's an actress. She wasn't a particular singer. Uh, you know, a singer. Um, so I came in on the first day and... I think the song was in G, something like that. Um, and she sang through it through a few times. She said, yeah, I think that'll be all right. I think that'll be okay. Um, might be a little bit low for me. Maybe we'll take it up tomorrow. I said, yeah, and that was fine, you know. I said, that's mm-hmm. absolutely fine. Um, let's try it out tomorrow and see how we go. Um, so it came the next day and she said, yeah, it is too low. Let's take it up a semitone. So we took it up. She said, oh, that's much better. Thank mm-hmm. you. Great, cool. That's superb. Okay, came in the next day. She said, it's a bit high for me there. <laughs> so you, know, you, you just sort of smile sweetly. And um, I said, okay, well, how about we drop it down below where the original was? She said, yeah, okay, let's take it down the same. So we're in F sharp now. Mm-hmm. She said, oh, that's much easier for me. Much easier. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, came in and said, oh, I'm not sure about those notes. It's a little low. For, and by this point, I had it all enough. Um, so, <laughs> you know, there's only so much you can take, isn't there? Yeah. Um, so I said, okay, tell you what, I said, come back after lunch and we'll try it again in a different key, all right? At least I didn't name then. Um, and she came back after lunch and I kept it exactly the same key. I said, how's this? I'm just taking it up a semitone or a tone. And she said, oh, that's so much better. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. And I learned quite a lot from that, actually. Um, and I do it quite a lot with people if they complain too much. Mm-hmm. I will say come back later and we'll try on a different key and it'll be exactly the same key and every time they'll say oh much better thank you so much that's weird it's like a placebo isn't it yeah. it's like a placebo yeah. it's like getting medicine that does nothing <laughs> and you go oh yeah that feels much yeah. better now I'm so um, I'm cured yeah so the knack brilliant technique yeah the, the knack is really to, to massage the egos of them yes and of course you, know, you mustn't forget that say she's, she was quite famous in fact she still is quite famous um, she was in standards for a long long time and she's the person people are coming to see and the person people are paying money for. So therefore she has to feel comfortable. I can understand that. And if she's not very comfortable with her singing, which she wasn't, she was very unconfident in her singing ability. I can understand her being worried. Mm. That's fair enough. But there does come a point where you think, oh, shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you if it's yeah. really yeah. bad. Exactly, yeah. Exactly, yeah. That's my job. <laughs> That's my job. But, you yeah. know, you know yeah. um, now it's my work. Mm-hmm. It's like this stupid thing, you know, if you... If, if I go to a party, I absolutely refuse to play the piano, which sounds, which sounds really horrible. But I absolutely yeah, you're refuse. Stingy. Yeah, I know. You're stingy yeah, and people man. say that. Um, 
And I said, look, I'm here to enjoy myself and relax. I, that's my work. Yeah. You know, um, I was talking to somebody actually a couple of months ago about this, and uh, I, I met somebody who um, was a plumber, I think, at one of these parties. And they were all saying, play something. I said, no, I really, I want to just relax. I don't want to do that. That's my job. Hmm. And I said to the plumber, okay, will you come and fix my sink for nothing tomorrow? And he said, no. I said, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, if you pay me to play, I'll play. People, people see it as an entertainment because they don't do it themselves. And they just yeah. think, you know, oh, he can sit and play. No, I had enough of it. You know, <laughs> yeah. I work on it all day during the day. The last thing I want to do is play at night at a party. <laughs> if I it's, to... it's like, a, I guess the difference is that a plumber doesn't plumb to entertain people. <laughs> uh, unless he's really good. <laughs> <laughs> Bang pipes together. And make it... Playing the keyboard, <laughs> I've seen you, and I, I feel bad telling you that I play keys in a band because <laughs> I'm, I'm horrifically bad at keys. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure you're not. I remember coming around here and asking you about one of the trills in there's a Beyonce song. Oh yeah, uh, put a mm. ring on it. Yes, like, yes. And I was asking, telling you that the parrot that we had in Brazil really liked it. That's it was right. A very yes. technical yes, piece, and you played it. You yeah. even sequenced yeah. it on your on your piano uh, exceptionally right. quickly, and I remember. <laughs> being very impressed because I couldn't my mind can't even differentiate there's so many notes in this trill that it I can't even differentiate those notes mm. and you just played it like, no. almost perfectly straight I away. may have worked it out in that possibly I mean yeah at that time I think but often with things like that I've I've just got a program called Transcribe I maybe used it before no, no. no it's a really good program um, if I need to because I'm often asked to um, to basically lift a, a a track from a CD and make my own track of it for somebody. So in other words, you know, without vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really handy program because I can put the MP3 or whatever it may be into the computer on this track on this program, and slow it down to the nth degree. Um, yeah. And you can also loop sections of the track, so it literally will just play them again and again and again. So if you're trying to work out what a chord is or what an instrument is, you can slow it down to 70%, 50%, 30%. Oh, that's um, and it's really handy um, if I've got to work out maybe a jazz-orientated score, which is quite hard to work out. Jazz mm. scores are not easy to work out in your head. Quite ornate. Yeah. With notes. So I slow it right down so you can hear absolutely every note perfectly. And then... And it, yeah. Uh, does it pitch? I mean, I'm, pitch I'm imagining that it doesn't like go. Does not no, Does not pitch. No. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> good impression of um. Yes. Slow down. The record sound, slowing yeah. down. Uh, no, the pitch stays correct. Brilliant. It's a good program. That's really good. Mm. There is a uh, on a different side of things. There's a creative program called Paul Stretch, which is um, and you'll find videos of it on the internet. You can slow things down like eight thousand <laughs> percent, and people have done it with like Justin Bieber song. <laughs> And it, it, they sound really ambient and, like, relaxing. It's like whale song a little bit. <laughs> um, it's a free programme. It's called Paul Stretch. And, and sometimes even with my own tracks, if I don't like one of my tracks, I just put it in Paul Stretch and turn it into an 18-minute song. Yeah. <laughs> and I listen to certain bits and be like, this is really good. <laughs> this is way better than the original. And it, but it does the same thing. It holds the pitch yeah. and notes. And, um, yeah, I found it's really useful for, for making sample packs, mm. especially, for example, if you've got a vocal you can make that vocal phrase last for a very long time of course, yes. while keeping the pitch. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's useful. It's a useful yeah, that is handy. creative mm. tool. Maybe not for what you do, though. You're <laughs> more professional. Than <laughs> I can play with it. I have to do these things <laughs> to, to, to make it sound <laughs> <Yes>. good. <laughs> um, I'd like to ask you, well, a couple of things. You mentioned about um, Queen and the, the theatre, and I remember I'd, it yeah. would be great to talk to you about your birthday party. That you, that <laughs> yes, about. and Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Yes. So that, <laughs> um, was, it was, that was your 21st? It was my 21st, yes. And I was in London um, visiting a well-known dancer um, in Kensington, and I was literally spending... I was going to literally drop in for a coffee and spend the day just wandering around London. I had nothing particularly planned at all. Mm-hmm. And um, I got there and this dancer used to live, he doesn't live anymore, um, in like a muse um, terrace um, um, in West, South Kensington. Um, so it was blocked off at the end. So the, it was a church at the end, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So there were no cars going up and down it at all. It was just a little private muse. 
And um, he um, had organised a party for me, a street party, um, <laughs> which was totally unexpected. And Freddie Mercury was there as my DJ. Um, so he was sort of spinning the records, um, which was great. Um, and <laughs> slightly bizarre um, yeah. um, to have him there. Um, and yeah, and sort of that sort of began a, a friendship that lasted until his death, <laughs> which That's was incredible. Great fun. <laughs> Do you, I mean, obviously it was your 21st birthday mm. party, I, I imagine you got quite drunk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did get very drunk, yes. <laughs> yeah. What can you remember of, for example, do you remember any songs that he played? What, what sort of stuff were no, you playing? No, I re- honestly can't remember. I, I really can't, and we're talking a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I really don't know. Um, but he was he was an interesting man, because he, he was quite an insomniac, actually, and I used to, <laughs> when I was living in London at that point, um, he used to phone me at something like four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd answer the phone, obviously, be fast asleep. He said, oh, I'm bored, darling, come over. <laughs> it's four in the morning, Freddie. I'm bored, want to talk to me on the phone, Freddie? No, I want to see you. <laughs> so you get in a cab and you go to the um, Garden Lodge, which is where he lived in Kensington, um, and you go in and he'd be absolutely wide awake and buzzing. And you know, and he hadn't been to bed, and he said, "Oh, let's let's play some stuff at the piano, and let's have a sing, let's do some." And we'd sit and chat and drink champagne, and and, <laughs> and then at half past nine or something, he'd say, "Oh, I need to get to bed now." Um, and I said, "Well, yeah, I know, need to get to the Guildhall or wherever I was going at that point. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. I've been working up at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> you go to bed, Freddie. You have a good life." And it happened so frequently. <laughs> oh, it used to drive me nuts. Um, but I don't know why I couldn't talk on the phone. But um. I think he just liked company. Uh, yeah, I guess yeah. you're very yeah. sociable. Yeah. Very sociable yeah. person. So that was a bit crazy. It's <laughs> amazing. And, and like, I mean, he was like a virtuoso piano He was a phenomenal player. player. Yeah. Really good player. Yeah. As well as having a voice that just could capture... <laughs> the most unusual voice people. in the world. It really was, I think. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah, I, I, did, I, I don't... That? It was just the, the, the tone of his voice. If you listen to some of the original, you know, The Night of the Opera, Day at the Races, those iconic albums that they made... The way he could change his voice so much was so I found quite interesting. You know, doing um, uh, "Lazy on a Sunday Afternoon," for instance, which I think is from a day at the races. Um, "Lazy on a Sunday Afternoon," my best friend, um, and of course, Bing Rhapsody. Uh, the, the voices, the voice in there sound—they all sound completely different. Mm. Um, it's very clever what he did with his voice. Um, absolutely unique. Yeah, um, I mean the power of his voice when he opens oh, yeah. up. Yeah, is phenomenal. Yeah, what a great set of lungs. He oh has. God, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely amazing. And even even later in life, when he did things like Barcelona with Montserrat Caballé, um, just before he died, I think actually he did that. Um, yeah, it was ninety two, wasn't it? Oh, was it, it? ninety two Olympics mm. was Barcelona? Um, and when he sung that, I mean, it's a hell of a piece to sing. And I know he was quite exhausted then as well, and he had to have a lot of makeup on to cover what he looked like. He wasn't looking at all well. Mm-hmm. Um, but my God, he could still hit those notes and really belt it out. You know, he um, probably took it out of him. But, yeah. Um, but, you know, he certainly did it well. The song the song for me that stands out of Queen is not one of their, like, big, great hit anthems, is uh, Who Wants to Live Forever. Yeah. Like, it's the stunning, vocal delivery on that. Oh, yeah. It, it sends a shiver down my spine now just thinking it's the about it. a beautiful song. Yeah. It's incredible. Mm. It's, there's so much emotion and re- reality in that song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. It I really like um, No One But You, um, which I believe, I may be totally wrong here, I don't think Freddie ever recorded it. I think he died before it was done. I have a feeling that Brian May wrote it and gave it to Freddie, and Freddie said he didn't like it. Or maybe he'd think about it and gave it back to Brian. And mm-hmm. Brian put it in a drawer, and then Freddie died. And I have a feeling that I maybe this may be completely wrong. I'm admitting that completely. But I have a feeling that after his death, Brian recorded it with um, Roger and John. I see. Um, I think that's it. That might be completely wrong. Oh, um, do you think he regretted not getting the vocal take before he dies? Probably yes. Because <laughs> I mean, I think the Made in Heaven album is beautiful, um, which was the last one they did. Where, mm. But I know, in fact, it was completed after his death. I think I know they really struggled to get him to sing much in a day because he was really very ill at that point yeah um, it's a stunning album it really is maybe they could use Paul Stretch to make some notes longer <laughs> <to change. laughs> I don't think that would have gone very well <laughs> that one, no, no it wouldn't have gone down no. very well either um, ethically yeah eth- ethically corrupt yeah it is a beautiful album though, um, but I know he's really struggled recording it 
Um, yeah. And in fact, I think a lot. I think some of the songs on there were actually almost demos where they had to lift his voice off them after his death and put them on mm-hmm. um, to the tracks. Cool. Well, I think we've covered everything. Um, yeah, thank you very much for talking to me. Yeah, welcome. Thank it's you. Been, it's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, you've done some amazing things in your career. It's, <laughs> it's really great for you to share those for, for people and to listen to. People say that to me, and I say, well, it's just my job, you know, which is what it is. It's, it's work. It's nice that I have a very good job, and it's different every day, um, but it's just a job mm. <laughs> at the end of the day. Great. Well, thank you very much. Cool. You're very welcome. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Well, it was great to catch up with Peter and listen to some of his stories. Uh, he's had a really incredible career, like a really diverse career in a lot of, um, a lot of different disciplines seems to me he's somebody who forges very strong friendships with people that are very long-lasting, so um, that's an incredible talent on its own. Okay, next month I'm speaking to a modular synth guru, so we're talking VCOs, VCAs, ADSRs, LFOs, and all that synth good stuff. So check it out. I am Midiera, this is Midiera Meets. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you again soon.